Bienvenidos. That's California for welcome to the January 3rd edition of National Review's Radio Free California podcast. I'm Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. You can find my friend and co-host David Bonson right here. He's an economist and author, the host of the Capital Record podcast and founder of the eponymous investment firm, The Bonson Group. Hello, David. Hello, Will. Happy New Year, my friend. And to you, buddy. Um, it could have been happier. Yesterday's football results, including the traumatic injury to a Buffalo Bills player, just really left me with a sad, sad feeling. Um, you know, isn't that it, interesting? How isn't that interesting how life works? I I just got off an airplane a very short while ago, coming back from Dallas. I brought my baby boy out to. Dallas. So we just had a wonderful time. We were in the 12th row at the 50 yard line, uh, got to tour all around Texas stadium and just spent a couple of days out there and a really wonderful father son trip. And then, you know, the game was just, was just heartbreaking. And uh, for, from the USC standpoint, I mean, Tulane, you couldn't have had a better storybook ending to a storybook season. And we had a couple of Tulane fans right behind us who were the nicest guys and, and you feel so good for them. But as a Trojan, Felt terrible for the way we gave the game away. And then you're right. That night, I'm back in the hotel, and this it wasn't like a football injury. It was like someone could die. And it was just this real surreal moment of perspective um, that uh, you're right. Now, look, people, I know people die every day. There's injuries. There's this and that. But, I mean, that was just, it was really something where I felt so bad about this heartbreaking SC loss. And then you realize one of the healthiest 24 year olds on the planet is having cardiac arrest. And you're, you're just, life is, um, life is weird, man. <laughs> life is weird. I think Augustine said that. Um, or was it, uh, who was it? Tertullian? I can never remember who said, uh, I believe it because it makes no sense, something like that, about the mystery of faith. Um, but it is it is weird. Hey, um, speaking of weird, you and I have not really had a chance to talk at all about the break. Uh, we haven't talked about anything, in fact. This is our first meeting uh, since about the holidays. About the break. Well, over the holidays, I actually took in uh, two things, one of which I promised I would not watch. This is a pop culture moment here for oh you. Oh, my God. I know what you're going to say. What am I going to That's why do? this is in the show notes. Megan and Harry. You watched it? Um, as much as I could tolerate. Pardon? Did you lose a bet? No. I um, I just decided that for my Anglophone self, I ought to pay it, or Anglophile, I guess it is both. Uh, my Anglophile self, I should watch it. I'd heard a lot about it. it you know, these are our neighbors. They are in California. So and by the way, for those who don't know, Anglophile means because Will loves white people. <laughs> And what he's saying is because he loves white people, he thought he should watch Megan and Harry. I just want to make sure I'm clear on the logic. Where my my reasoning was, because I love white people, I'm not going to watch <laughs> Megan and Harry. Now, it by was, the way, she's, she's what, a quarter African-American, right? Uh, quarter or half, I'm, I'm not sure. Oh, not half. No, I mean, her mother, I think, is is an african-american like 100 percent, but I, I honestly well, don't maybe know. i'm wrong yeah i don't know i don't know i could be wrong um, her dad is is as white as either you or i and is the most execrable person in this complete circus clown show of freaks but anyway her dad is 
Her dad is. Yeah, he's a California guy. Um, uh, but this, the thing that really got me, David, was just how out of touch the couple seems. And then I went then I went back and read reviews and the critics who hated the thing were absolutely abundantly right. These are two people who are so overly sensitive about their own, quote unquote, predicaments and who don't want any kind of fame at all. Please, can we just live our lives in quiet? And oh, by the way, we're doing a $100 million documentary for uh, for Netflix. And I guess Harry's got a new book coming out. But it was, a, it was a weird, weird documentary, shot as it was in this massive mansion they they rented, apparently. This isn't their home that they own next to uh, Oprah. It's a, they rented a place with an ocean view. And it's just difficult. It's It's cringy to listen to people talk about how difficult their lives are um, when they are among the most, I guess there's no better word, privileged people on the planet. There are very few people who live this well. And I get there's a cost that comes with wealth. We all know that. There's a cost that comes with poverty too, however. And um, it was just hard to take. It's interesting though that the hypocrisy that you caught on to, which I'm in 100% agreement with, is someone talking about adversity and struggle from an ocean view house in San in Calabasas or what have you. Montesino. When I would also argue the other component is their desperate request for privacy. <laughs> while, yeah. while, while doing a, a multi-part series. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I just love people. This is Some not the witness. Awesome. This is not a witness protection protocol to get on Netflix and talk about, how difficult your life is. Anyway, um, because people people say, well, David, you always say you're so introverted and you want your privacy and you want to be left alone, but you do podcasts, you go on TV, and I go, that's right. But try finding me when I'm not doing this podcast. Yeah, I, no, it, it's you, you, you won't know what I'm doing. Well, I I do think that it was fascinating also to read after I watched the show a um, a story from uh, Newsweek, uh, which cites a UK poll. The story's everywhere. I'll put the one that I found in the show notes. But it's a poll that purports to show that um, Britons absolutely despise this young royal couple. Um, just really find them reprehensible. The least like, uh, the least liked of all the of all the royals, and that's saying something, I think. Um, so, um, who was it? Was it Jonah Goldberg who said we fought a revolution so we wouldn't have to talk about these people? I can't remember, but it's a good line. I thought I said that. Maybe I stole it from him. You, you, you know well, what? Whoever said it was brilliant, and then if yeah. it turns out that was me, then uh, sorry, but no, no. I think you're right. I think it was Jonah. And, and the only thing I want to say is it is a California story because they're in California doing all this, but it is also a human nature story that there is just something so extraordinarily uh, self-deceiving about basic human nature. People are willing to play the role of victim. They're willing to talk about how poorly they've been mistreated in a life of privilege. And they are absolutely intolerably boring people. <laughs> like there is nothing in the world that could get me to care about these two people, even though they're rich and famous. Mm. And if they weren't rich and famous, there wouldn't be anything that would get anyone else to care about them. Right. Well, yeah, but I, I'll say this: that you know, at the core of of every human who is like this, and we're all, we, you know, we all have the tendency when we're angry, hungry, lonely, tired, whatever, 
to not be at our best selves. But these are people whose sustained ability to claim victim status has been amazing. And I do want to say. But I think they should be complimented for reading the room. Uh, victimhood, it, victimhood is what sells right now. That's right. And there, that's why there's no coincidence that Netflix is in California, that this couple is in California. And, you know, you and I have said that Netflix has occasionally done really wonderful things, you know, responsible things. Um, speaking of which, I was going to just say, I, I was going to say Harry has my uh, lifelong admiration for having basically defied the royal family in order to go serve in the front lines with the uh, British military uh, in Afghanistan, I think it was. I remember reading a lot about this at the time, and he was kind of, you know, basically had to run away from home in order to be with his unit and uh, didn't have to do that. Could very easily have, you know, gone on a global uh, tour and with his young bride, or he wasn't married yet, but could have gone on a, you know, very comfortable world tour and uh, celebrated people in Ibiza or something like that. Um, the other thing I just wanted to just point out just for a quick, just a touch point is that HBO Max is running the second season of White Lotus. And many of our, I, I'm surprising you with this one, David, but many of our listeners may not know that the director, Mike White, is from Orange County. He was born in Pasadena, but is from Orange County. And Mike White's dad is Mel White. And Mel White is a fairly famous evangelical minister who uh, announced that he was gay, I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, and wrote a series of books about the problem of Christianity and homosexuality, um, a problem that he, no surprise, saw all on one side, um, you know, for the people who would perpetrate anti-gay stuff and for those who suffer. Um so, you know, maybe some other time we can uh, dig into Mel White and the evangelicals' relationship with with gay politics in general. Unless, of course, you have something to say. And, and my hook is only everybody's been watching White Lotus, and I got to watch that, and I found it really dispiriting and wonderful to watch, imminently watchable. Yeah, I think it's the best show of 2022, and I think it is really noteworthy in that the first season was fantastic, and it is absolutely unheard of for a second season to be better. And the second season of White Lotus was better than the first season. Hmm. And I do not say that very often. Um, and so I'm with you on that. I've completed it. And so it sounds like you're not done with it yet. I am. Yeah. Okay. Just in case some listeners aren't. Now, at this point, it's kind of on them. It's been done for about three or four weeks. But we'll give people another week or two till we do any spoiler alerts. But... I'm with you. I think uh, White Lotus was fantastic. As far as dedicating time on Radio Free California to force me to talk about um, the totally non-controversial topic of evangelicals and the gay community, I can totally see why that would have a Radio Free California hook. And so why not try to get me in trouble for no reason whatsoever? Thank you, Will. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a moment to uh, to catch. I mean, I get in trouble for talking about USC football, and they're literally called the University of Southern California. <laughs> and you want me to talk about gay and evangelical controversy? Well, why I, in the I, world? As an editor, I, and even now running a uh, a free market think tank, I am notorious for saying, "Hey, that sounds like a great story." Uh, and somebody will say, "What's the hook?" Well, Mel White lives in Laguna Beach. Come on, man, that's California. Now, does he still live in Laguna Beach? believe so. But I, I would not want to bet my children's lives on that. Yeah. 
All right. What else have we got? No time. Hey, um, I want to talk about Katie Porter. Uh, fascinating oh, piece that broke from, uh, I always want to call him Rico Suave, but I think it's uh, ba- Robbie Suave or Soave. Yeah. I'm not sure how he pronounces his last name of reason. Uh, here's the headline. California Congresswoman Katie Porter blamed and punished a staffer for allegedly giving her COVID-19. Um, the story is that uh, she had a... Um, a fellowship position in her office and a U.S. Navy veteran named Sasha, and I believe it's pronounced Georgiades. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, but but Sasha, if I mean, no disrespect in calling her by her first name. She's also, as I said, a U.S. Navy veteran. It's just that her last name, I, I don't want to beat up for her throughout this explanation. She joins Porter's staff. Now, Katie Porter is a congresswoman from our neighborhood, Irvine, Newport Beach. Um, full disclosure, you and I supported very much Scott Baugh, who, who has been on the show uh, in his race against her. He lost narrowly after several days of counting. He lost narrowly to Porter and was outspent like five or six, or 10 to one. I mean, it was pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, but Katie Porter has, you know, just really got the enthusiasm of, she's sort of the Elizabeth Warren of the house. Um, a person who is a UC Irvine law professor on leave, uh, her big gimmick is to carry a whiteboard with her into meetings and then describe for adults as if they were children uh, how things work in the real world. Um, she's almost invariably wrong. But anyway, she takes on uh, Sasha, the U.S. Navy veteran, in this fellowship program in 2020 and then just ends the fellowship unilaterally in August of um, or, or before that, I'm sorry, in June of 2022, because she says Sasha gave her COVID. Um, the bottom line is that- Which is basically a freaking death sentence. It's a death sentence. And it's it's a really kind of remarkable story because this the whole kind of firing took place on text messages between the two. And Georgiades is apologizing profusely throughout these things. I'm so sorry. I didn't think I did anything wrong. And here's here's what happened. Georgiades goes to work out. She's a apparently a beast in the gym. She goes to work out, as with most of her workouts. She's a little sore when it's over and doesn't think anything of it. Um, that later becomes the conflict point because uh, Katie Porter, who I am just telling you I have met in person, has probably never seen the inside of a gym. Um, but Often, oh, is she a, what is she a Peloton girl? Kind of a home, uh, home workout? No, no, I'm pretty sure she is not. <laughs> is that what you meant? I'm trying to be kind here. She's not a person you know, who's some of the movement. Zoom Zoom uh, yoga. Uh, yeah, probably that's it. Um, <laughs> she's she's a big girl, a big lady. I'm sorry, I've just really screwed myself up here terribly. She's I'm sorry to all bu- of our listeners. She's a big bully, is what she is. is she really is. About, the point you're about to make. Thank you. So. Um, Georgiades apologizes, but it's, you know, as um, as uh, Robbie says in Reason, but, but to no avail, she was instructed never to return to the office and completed the rest of the fellowship remotely. In the text messages, Porter noted that she had avoided contracting COVID-19 for the first two years of the pandemic and suggested she would have continued the streak if only Georgiades had followed the rules of getting tested right when you know you've been exposed. But of course, Georgiades didn't know she'd been exposed. She was sore from a workout. Um, so it, it's just really amazing that Porter would seize on an interaction with one staffer who might or might not have been sick, blame the staffer for not following the protocol, which she did. As soon as she realized she might actually be sick, Georgiades took the test 
and uh, and told everybody. And that's the point at which, you know, our, our, I guess COVID Katie Porter decides that um, it's got to be this person and this person only who gave me this thing. I did not when I got COVID last summer. I did not think back to every person who had possibly exposed me. And then oh, I did. I had to. I had to. Well, I never had COVID. So I, <laughs> if I had had COVID, I would have just sued everyone for giving it to me. Yeah. Because if there's one thing I know is that when you get a disease that 2 billion other people get, someone has to pay. That's right. Someone someone failed morally if you got a disease that every damn person in the country got. Yeah. This was the most – I mean, Katie Porter is an arrogant narcissist and has has a history of acting very, very um, juvenile about – like you recall – her boyfriend getting a scuffle with Irvine PD and her texting the mayor of Irvine. Like right. your, your cops are out of control, right? Let me tell you something. This thing was not just Katie Porter narcissism. This was scientific know-nothingness on steroids. Yes. By the time Katie got, she actually said, I've done an incredible job at not getting COVID. Right. Well, look at you. I mean, what does that even mean? How many people out there now have 53 boosters and wore seven masks for two and a half years and have got COVID three times? Right. Dear God, Katie, what is wrong with you? And you're going to blame this poor woman? And she said, you're keeping me away from my kids. Right. As if being a congresswoman in D.C. with two kids on the other coast, she was apparently reportedly yeah, in she lied. D.C. She, she lied because she said, I can't see my kids. Right. And she wasn't on the same coast as her kids when this happened. That's right. And wasn't planning to be. Was planning right. to be in the office in D.C. So made right. that part up. Um, she is a bad I'm all person. for lying about seeing your kids, by the way. I'm, <laughs> I think it's fine. But not when it's, you know, an intern. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I draw a line. I could go on. I'm so glad you you pointed out her battle with the mayor of Irvine because it was, I believe, her husband who was arrested temporarily, at least held for a moment by Irvine PD because he punched a Trump protester in the nose uh, outside yeah. City Hall. Yeah. And uh, the protester apparently refused to file charges of assault. But um, that's what got Katie worked up. Um, and also the fact that, you know, this is a person who is living in subsidized uh, faculty housing at UCI, but hasn't taught in two years, doesn't plan to teach in two more, and is already making noises about running for U.S. Senate from California. Um, so it doesn't sound like she has any intention of returning to the classroom at UC Irvine, which is a, a godsend. And the university should be grateful for this because it's very difficult to fire a UC professor. Um but I think, you know, her intention to her, her willingness to run for two more years was itself uh, an announcement that she's not coming back. Uh, sabbaticals don't typically last four years, uh, never mind whatever her success in the Senate race is. Um, but there she is. Um, so I, I wanted to also just do a quick catch up if we could on uh, AB 257. That's the big uh, sectoral bargaining uh, law that uh, Newsom signed off on this past year. And this will do for unions what they could not accomplish for themselves. That is, it will basically unionize fast food workers. Uh, The way it does that is this law just simply makes anybody who works in fast food a kind of a ward of the state, a state commission in this case of, depending on who you listen to, it's either going to be 10 or 13 people, these commissioners, um, 
who will determine for these workers who did not ask to be assembled in this group, it will determine for them what their wages and working conditions are. Now, something amazing happened on the way to implementation of this. The, the law was supposed to be implemented on January 1st. And we're going to go over some other laws that uh, began on January 1st. But this was supposed to be implemented on January 1st until uh, the fast food industry got together and um, launched a signature gathering campaign for a petition on the November 2024 ballot to repeal AB 257. As soon as that group uh, satisfied a simple legal requirement to submit the minimum, at least the minimum number of signatures, the, the law should not have been implemented. But the state violated constitutional law. The Department of Industrial Relations told the signature gathering organization, this fast food industry group, hey, we know the law usually uh, requires us to wait, but we're not going to wait. January 1st, uh, Sunday, uh, this law goes into effect and it sucks to be you. So the fast food industry folks got together and uh, they filed a suit and said, you got to follow your own law. And a judge took approximately a minute to reach a decision last Thursday and said, nope, state law is very clear on this. Until the signatures are verified, you can't do anything. If they're not verified, then the law can be implemented immediately. If the law qualifies, if this if this uh, petition qualifies for the November ballot, that is, if there's enough signatures on it and they're all verified, then the voters will decide in November 2024 whether AB 257 can be implemented. My hook is just watching how the state of California passed a law to take people's right to assembly and speech away from them and to subject them to a commission they didn't elect, didn't ask for, that was imposed on them by Sacramento. Um, and also will just seriously disrupt, and not in a good way, the fast food industry. I, we've talked about this at some length. I don't want to relitigate the entire thing here. But it, it is not surprising, but still every once in a while, kind of shocking to watch how the state just says, when the law applies to us, it doesn't matter. When it applies to you, it matters in the extreme. Um, and so that's, that's all I really wanted to say, just to bring everybody up to speed. So right now what's going on is the Secretary of State is verifying the signatures. If they determine that they don't, the signatures aren't verifiable, that they don't have enough uh, signatures to qualify this thing, then AB 257 goes ahead as awful, illegal, and unethical, immoral as I think it is. It goes into, uh, it is it will be imposed on us, um, barring some other legal attack, uh, which I could only support. Um, but if it qualifies, if there's enough signatures and this thing is on the November ballot, AB 257 will have to wait a couple of years. Now, I, I predict ultimately that all the people who said that this was just a fast food power grab by the wealthy to keep poor, poor workers in the fast food industry uh, from getting their their right to representation by the state. I think, you know, it's... Um, it is entirely likely that uh, the labor unions that support this thing, particularly SEIU, will come back and they will sue. They will sue the Secretary of State to immediately allow implementation. They'll sue the D Department of Industrial Relations to try to make them do this, uh, impose it. Um, so we'll see. Um, anyway, David, sorry for that long rambling. And Well, no, um, don't be sorry because your article is one of my favorite articles so far of uh, 2023. Um as a matter of fact, at 6.30 a.m. on January 1st, when it went live, it was my favorite article of 2023 so far. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, 
that, that only lasted about 20 more minutes, a, a couple <laughs> new ones. But I just hope you put the link in the show notes. That's all I was going to say. I'll do that. Thank you, yeah. buddy. Um, okay. So um, I, I, I'm trying to hit just the biggest stories here. That's why I went with Megan and Harry first. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. Um, but this one just really struck me, David. Um, Kardashian? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you need to get off planes and then do back-to-back podcasts more frequently, my friend. Yeah. Um, here's the headline from the uh, Mercury News. This Bay Area County, they're talking about Alameda, will be the latest to ban criminal background checks for renters. And then the, the subhead is officials across the country begun adopting, quote, fair chance laws to combat homelessness and recidivism. Uh, here's the lead paragraph. Alameda County is moving to prevent landlords from screening prospective tenants based on their criminal histories, the latest in a growing number of actions by local governments nationwide to make it easier for formerly incarcerated people to find housing. So this is a tremendously biased story, and I won't uh, make everybody sit through my media criticism of the piece, but it is an incredibly biased story that assumes nothing. Uh, There is no right on the part of landowners to... We get we get one quote from a landowner's a landlord's representative who says, you know, this could create some problems if one of these people gets in. We didn't check and they do something bad and the other renters object um, you know, to having a criminal in their midst. Um, we get that one quote. But otherwise, it's just a series of assumptions about how good and necessary this bill is. Here's a story. Uh, in January, the Alameda County Board of Supervisors is poised to formally adopt the rule set to cover most apartment buildings. So it's only apartment buildings in unincorporated parts of the county. So cities still have ultimate authority over this. This just covers incorporated, unincorporated parts of Alameda County. It would take effect only after the county chooses to end. I love this part to end its ongoing pandemic eviction moratorium. So they've had an eviction moratorium in place. Landlords have been unable to evict tenants who aren't paying, for instance, uh, because of the, uh, the pandemic eviction moratorium. So now this, the county has decided that it will just, you know, sort of extend the moratorium by making sure that nobody is checked for a criminal history. Um, David, you must have something wonderful and illuminating to say about how predictable this is on the one hand, uh, that the a government in, Bay, in the Bay Area would act badly on this. Um, now, Will, I'm curious, um, do you think the part that they're acting badly is that they are trying to do something to give criminals a second chance or, or excuse me, people who have completed their sentence. And so they're trying to interfere in the market to give people a second chance and, and therefore potentially create a higher risk level for other tenants. Or do you think the problem is that what they're trying to do, it doesn't even do that. It's counterproductive to the people they're trying to help. Because I think I, most conservative critics of this are in the first camp, and I'm in the second camp. Talk to me about the second camp. You're an owner of an apartment building. You no longer have, have the right to check a background check to get a chance to risk, evaluate, or potentially risk mitigate your asset. Do you therefore charge higher security deposits now? Do you therefore go to other screening mechanisms that are even more stringent because you're not allowed to do one of the lower hanging fruit ones that would benefit you. 
Do you potentially build less low-income housing or go to other neighborhoods that might screen out people that are likely to have a criminal record? In other words, the market's not stupid. They're going to move to a different activity that could end up being more discriminatory than the one that they were going to do. Here's what I'm not going to say to make my friends on the right happy, that I think anyone who's ever committed a crime should never have a place to live again. I don't believe that. But I certainly believe the landlord has a right to check their background. But if I'm a landlord and someone has an uh, issue in their past, I can make a decision as the owner of an asset what my cost benefits analysis is, what rent I might want to charge, security deposit. You can price some of these things. If it was a, a, a crime involving sex abuse of children, you know, you can just say, I don't rent to Megan's Law. I mean, there's things you can do. But the problem here is not merely the state trying to play do-gooder because I do believe in second chances. The problem is that they're hurting the second chances because they're now inviting the landlord to have to take more draconian steps against what they could otherwise do by just having transparency. Not allowed to check background? A landlord can't? That's the uh... yeah. The, the story itself is remarkable because it inadvertently acknowledges that landlords aren't required, after having done a background check, to do anything particular about what they find. So in the story, they uh, the, the reporter settles on a guy who sounds remarkable, Lee Bonner. Um, although he was serving a thirty-year sentence for second-degree murder, he got out uh, for good behavior. And um, it says, you know, how terrible it was that he had to sleep in his car, which I acknowledge. You know, you get out of jail or out of prison, rather, and the first thing you want to do is kind of get your life back in order, but you can't find a place to live. His family members weren't allowed to take him in because the the uh, conditions of their uh, con their renting contra renter's contract forbade anybody with a felony, right? So the guy was, you know, the, trying to hold down a job, working as a forklift driver and sleeping in his car. That's That's pretty terrible. Um, but the story notes that sort of later as a PS, oh, it was all good news for him because somebody heard about his story and, uh, they decided to rent to him anyway. So that point that this, this relationship can be voluntarily satisfied. I did hear somebody, um, in a little far left blog site say that, well, you know, if, if you don't get rid of this kind of background check, landlords not only don't have an incentive to take these people, but if they do take them, they're open to litigation. Well, that's a problem with our courts, I would argue. In other words, if I take in somebody into an apartment building I run and that person's, I've checked his criminal background, I've decided to ignore it, I let him in, then he does something terrible, the other people can sue me because I should have known he would do this thing. That's a problem with the courts that I would argue has been affected primarily by trial attorneys and yeah. our good friends in government who allow that sort of thing, and and our juries that listen to this kind of stuff and then say, yeah, somebody should pay for Katie Porter's COVID and for this guy's wrongdoing. Right, sure. I guess the point that, well, that you and I are in agreement on here that I'm trying to make, uh, when people think about this, they're thinking of it in terms of like, I'm tough on crime and and a landlord not having a right to you know look at this stuff for felons is is a step backwards in the tough on crime movement. 
And what I'm suggesting is that it's not only um, a problem with landlords having the right to have transparency of information in decisions they make around the stewardship of their asset, but it also will result in things that will hurt felons. Right. Because there are people that will now say, I can't rent to you because I'm not allowed to check if you're a felon or not. And therefore, I have to go to a mode of managing my asset that is going to do things that are a little draconian to make sure I'm not renting to any felons. Right. And by the way, I think it could lead to race-based yes. decision-making, yeah. which I am vehemently against. But but it's not you, – you, you can prove if you looked at someone's uh, felony record or not. You can't prove you can't re- read someone's mind if they made a race based decision. So is no, that what we want? And, is that what we're your, after? Well, to your point, David. I mean, imagine that part of what you ask for is a uh, a work history. Like, I want to know that you've been gainfully employed and can afford this place, and I need to be able to talk to your current employer. Yeah, You're are you allowed to, do to check that. your credit? Um, yes. So, 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 so think about that. You can't. You can know someone's financial history, and you can't know their criminal history. Right. About, I mean, think how stupid what we're talking about is. Well, and what I, what I meant to say was, imagine that if you know, I see that somebody worked in 2010, but yeah. not 2011, 12, 13, and now they're trying to rent an apartment from me, and I say, "What were you doing in these three years?" What are they going to? Or, or you just say, "Oh, I notice that the only money you spent was in the gift shop." In, in San Quentin San for three years, or, or or you could or you could say I'm just curious that three year period were you backpacking in Europe? Yes, I was working on the space station. Uh huh. Yeah. So it, it does, as you say. You know. Uh, you know. Though, I will say this. I will say this. I don't think we would need laws like this. I don't think there'd be people moving for stupid laws like this that are counterproductive, ill-advised, and an unhealthy relation, uh, unhealthy intervention of the state in the marketplace. If more people, though, I think we do need a better heart for um, those who have, who have done their time to society. Yeah, and that's why I'm a huge advocate of the uh, right on crime movement, you know, of conservative people. We see them a lot at the Acton Institute. They're part of the state policy network that I also belong to. I think um, I think that whole controversy about people having a right to vote, um, I was vehemently on the side of the left on that issue. That's right. That assumes they completed their sentence. Their sentence. That's right. That the legal definition is of having done their time. That's right paid their debt to society was complete. But um, no, I, I do not intend to spend the rest of my adult life living under the blessings of a theology of redemption and not preaching a reality of redemption. There are prisoners who deserve a second chance in society. But I also understand that there is complexity and difficulty and that landlords have a right to make decisions and neighbors have a right to know who they're, li- you know, there's a whole lot goes into it. I'm not being simplistic here, but my point is that um, the state's going to make this worse, not better. That's all. I love your, uh, that you've settled on subsidiarity, that I think the decision is best made yeah. by the people who are closest to the issue. You know, if I'm, right. if I'm a uh, guy who's just coming out of prison, it's up to me to persuade people that I have been redeemed, that I am in fact 
ready to straighten my life out, that I've got a job or will have one shortly, that I can afford this place. Yeah, that's that's how this should be worked out, not by Sacramento. Yeah. Um, hey, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that we moved off the subject of television, HBO, Netflix, whatever, uh, because uh, in talking about the uh, California exodus, I've been holding a story here, David, about uh, Marky Mark Wahlberg. And uh, his big announced move in, I think it was late October when this, yeah, it was mid-October when this story first came out, that Mark Wahlberg was announcing that he was moving his family to Nevada so that he could, it, it was, I guess the better way to put it is he sold his $90 million mansion in Beverly Hills to spend more time with his family. Um, there, He's moving his family to Nevada. Now, it's been fascinating to look at how the media cover this because it's just, you know, he just wants to spend, he wants his kids to have a better life. So he's moving to, with, to Nevada. Uh, the CNN story that I sent you, David, doesn't really make mention of the fact that he's really a business guy, that Mark Wahlberg doesn't make a lot of movies. His need to be in LA is not that significant, but he does have to pay a price for living in LA, high taxes, high regulation for his business the kinds of crazy laws that, you know, we discuss here week in and week out uh, that make running a business in California or just living a life so complicated that some people flee. So he's left. What the stories don't mention is how effective a businessman this guy is. He is, he is moving to Nevada and he says, oh, I'm going to build a studio. He's building an actual film studio in Nevada. Try doing that in Southern California. Um, he's building also a clothing brand. It's at least for the moment, it's housed, it's headquarters is in Carlsbad, North San Diego County, um, called municipal. And, uh, interestingly, municipal is a kind of, um, you know, agro sports kind of fitness brand. It's, you know, uh, I mean, as you would expect from Mark Wahlberg, it's about pumping iron and, uh, looking fit and that sort of thing. Um, so he's got a company, he's got a television show that's also on HBO Max, the aforementioned uh, streaming service uh, called Wall Street, get it, Mark Wahlberg, Wall Street, uh, where they follow him around. And I haven't seen it. I'm, I'm, I, I intend to now, but it's, it's been renewed for a third season. It's already gone on two seasons. But they follow Mark Wahlberg around to his various business ventures. And he talks about his business philosophy. He talks about what he's looking for in a studio production company. This guy has mega ambition. And he did not, I mean, I think the, the unwritten story is that he did not see that happening here. He made it through a series of interviews, apparently, not having ever dissed California, just saying, no, 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 it's purely the attraction of spending more time with my kids, you know, playing golf or riding horses, which you could do in California, certainly on his income. So I, I think that it's it's unlikely that we will see immediately the tell-all story, though I have my request in, um, about why Mark Wahlberg, you know, does this have something to do with wanting to run a business and not being constantly, you know, fighting to keep the government's hand out of your pocket and uh, keep their hands off your neck. So um, anyway, more to be revealed on that story. And it kind of fits with another story that I sent you, David, from the Sacramento Bee. The story was everywhere. The U.S. Census Department released uh, results of its latest data that show that uh, California lost another uh, 114,000 people, third year in a row for a uh, decline in state population, uh, more births than deaths in the state, uh, and uh, 125,000 immigrants made their homes here in the one-year span, but still people left. Uh, more people left than moved here. Um, 
So I, I did find it fascinating that the uh, that the chap at the head of uh, external affairs for the uh, U.S. Department of Finance tried to put a, a, a nice picture on it by saying, um, well, if you talk to demographers, they'll say that one of the factors is the cost of housing. Okay. So let's just set that aside for a moment. One of the factors for people leaving the state is clearly the cost of housing. But he goes on to say, uh, this guy, H.D. Palmer, external affairs for the uh, U.S. Department, the California Department of Finance says, but some people, for reasons other than demographics and more for politics, are trying to jump on the out-migration numbers. So his claim here is that anybody who tries to make political hay out of this uh, third and a year in a row decline is being dishonest. They're trying to spin this into a political story, when in fact, the real story isn't political at all, David. It's about high housing prices in California. I will let you address the, the logical fallacy in those two statements. Well, there, I mean, where do you begin? Um, I'm actually surprised that we still have to have the debate about the empirical reality as to whether or not, I mean, I, I'd rather debate about why people are leaving than whether or not they're leaving. Um, but I think, I think that the numbers are now being, you know, accepted um, left and right, you know, Republican, Democrat, media, Main Street, that uh, California used, used to be a huge attraction of incoming migration, um, and now it is not. And it is, in fact, a place where more people are leaving. And that, that's a more profoundly important thing than people understand. Because you, it's one thing when you say, wow, what are they doing wrong in Oklahoma? They actually lost a few more people than they gained. But Oklahoma's not known for beaches and mountains and deserts and perfect weather and so forth. California, if they were only bringing in 100,000 people, it should be a question like, what's going on? You would think there'd be 300,000 people that want to come. Have you seen San Diego in, in, you know, in the fall? Have you seen Newport Beach in the whatever time of year? Like the, the, it is a state that from its history, heritage, um, and still, even with all of the regulatory and fiscal headwinds, um, represents a real hub of a lot of industry and commerce, certainly technology, and yet is losing people. And it is losing people in the middle class. And this is the piece that is most problematic if I were a progressive, that the blue states are the ones that are uh, most unable to facilitate the people they say they most care about. Working class people, um, whether it be on the category of affordability, whether it be crime, school, um, you know, there's kitchen table issues here and there's just pure bottom line fiscal issues. Oregon is a funny state because they seem to want to do everything they can to make people leave before they die. Like they become a very unfriendly state to be retired in mm -hmm. where they have an egregious estate tax that other states don't have and they don't do anything to help uh, retirement expenditures where, you know, come from California. Like there's people who leave California to go to Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, and yet Oregon doesn't compete for that market share, which is just very odd. But no, California is making it possible to live here, not to die here. And um, for for middle class people, and I, I think this story is not going away. It's going to be a, a multi decade story, 
and uh, we have to keep highlighting it. Well, there's there's so much more to talk to you, David, and I know we only have a little time here left, but I do want to do a lightning round on new California laws. Uh, I'm hoping to get your lightning feedback on a few of these, because most of these we've discussed in great detail and everything here we've talked about at some point in the in the last year. Um, the, this I'm, I'm using as my <clears throat> as my template, my guide here, a story that was in U.S. News um, and their headline is New California Laws on Abortion, Jaywalking and Rap Lyrics. Uh, David, let's start with cheaper abortions. Uh, private insurance companies can't charge people, the story says. Can't charge these people co-pays or deductibles for abortions anymore. That'll save an average of $543 for a medication abortion and $887 for a procedural abortion, uh, according to a group that studied this. Uh, David, cheap abortions. Man, you know how many like hot outfits you can buy for the club? <laughs> Uh, higher pay. Um, California's, uh, this is a, a law that is linked to inflation. Is uh, Higher pay is going to jump. Minimum wage will jump to fifteen fifty per hour. Um, I'll let you handle. I think you should just pull these out of your holster where you have these bullets already kind of chambered, uh, ready to, to fire. What's wrong with minimum wage rising? Well, um, nothing. It, it, minimum wage can't rise because what we're referring to is the minimum wage that an employer um, has to pay an employee who they hire. Minimum wage is zero because you cannot uh, be forced to hire somebody. All right? So once you start with the premise that the minimum wage is always zero because the employer may not transact, then we're debating about what the gap will be between the natural market value and the unnatural market value. So if $12 an hour is what an employer and employee would agree to, by making the minimum wage 15, you didn't make the minimum wage 15, you made it zero because the $12 an hour transaction didn't happen. The employer was willing to pay 12, but he wasn't willing to pay 15 or 20 or 22 or whatever they're doing. So the number one problem to start with the minimum wage is the nomenclature. It isn't a minimum wage because it ignores the wages that don't get paid because it was not at a market clearing level. And you go, oh, well, hold on. This is all getting kind of complicated here. You're getting into some Haikian price discovery type of stuff. Well, first of all, you're damn right I am. Second of all, you should too. Third of all, it's really important philosophically. A market is, a market is, the market is not imposed. The market is not created by legislation. You do not make the clearing level between an employer and employee $20 an hour. You don't make the rent between a landlord and a tenant $2,200 a month or $1,600 a month or whatever by, by the state dictating it so. The market is what an employer and employee would transact at freely without coercion, without intervention. And all you do is ignore Allah, the broken window fallacy that Friedrich Bastiat taught us in the 19th century. All you do is ignore the people who don't get hired because you set the uh, price by law above the market clearing price. And if there is someone of lower skills 
and lower value, uh, economic value to the business that you were willing to hire for below the minimum wage, you priced them out. And this is economics 101. Now, the counter arguments have always been, well, no, the employer could pay the higher and they just don't and it's greed and this and that. And then you get companies like Amazon that raise the wage and then dramatically lower the payrolls. They're spending less by paying less people more money. The greater investment in the kiosks and automation and so forth. So you ignore market distortion. So it's one of the reasons why this is a complicated issue. Um, look, I, I pay my people very, very well. I pay far above market uh, competitive wages and peer group wages. Um, and I don't do that uh, be, to be a good person per se. I do it as a businessman. I really want high retention. I want a culture of gratitude and enthusiasm in my business. But there are businesses, Will, and you know this, where people can afford to pay 10 bucks an hour for certain work and cannot afford 15 an hour. Right. They're not all living off of the types of margins, you know, the businesses like mine are. And for the government to intervene, whether it's well-intentioned or not, people have to understand the slippery slope here. You do not need a government to set prices, including the price of labor in a free society, period. Wow. Um, everything I would say now would uh, just recap what you just said. I, I will ask people to look at the AB257 story that I wrote. <clears throat> I'll put it in the show notes if you haven't seen it, um, because I, I go through precisely that. The first effort of this commission has already been sort of uh, signaled to us, broadcast to us. They said they're going to impose a 22 or $23 per hour minimum wage in the fast food industry, which sounds great if you're working there until you realize that the next thing that happens, as you said, is automation. You cut the payroll immediately, the number of people you can hire. You limit human interaction because it's become too costly. And you just make capital, a one-time capital investment on machines and have people come in and press an ATM-like kiosk to order their food. We've all seen these now in places like McDonald's. Um, but this is the next step, that you intend to protect these people. And the first thing you do will have disastrous implications for their long-term viability in the workplace. You know, you know what else, by the way? Um, you may have heard... A lot of rich people don't eat a ton of fast food. I have heard this. And a lot of lower income people do eat a lot of fast food. Yes. Do you think prices have gone higher in fast food as compulsory wages have gone higher? Oh, 100% I do. Yes. So who's paying those higher prices? The consumer. And who and is the consumer? Is the consumer, consumer is-, is the consumer in the bell-shaped curve more on the lower income side or the higher income side? The lower. It's a tax on the lower poor. income That's right. people. Yes, we could go on. Um, another law, uh, jaywalking and loitering will be enforced differently than they have been uh, in 2023. Now, this, David, comes back to a bill that you and I talked about from our buddy Scott Weiner, who makes his first appearance in this new year in this episode of Radio Free California. Well, was there goes my New Year's resolution. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. You weren't going to talk about Weiner's. Uh, SB 357, Senate Bill 357, that was Scott Wiener's bill, um, that you remember, David, said that cops should no longer be able to enforce loitering or jaywalking because it um, was basically an attempt on the part of the white patriarchy, the white straight uh, hetero patriarchy, to go after 
people who are um, trans people who might be prostitutes, um, who might be suspected of prostitution just because they dress differently. And so cops who want to move people along to get them off the streets because they ought not just to be hanging around outside doing nothing uh, can no longer do that. You can no longer be uh, stopped for loitering. Thank you, Scott Weiner. and also Scott Weiner, SB 107, goes into effect or went into effect on Sunday. Uh, this is the Making California a Haven for Transgender Kids. Uh, probably the less said about this, the better. Um, we've talked about it at great length. Now, but- by, by the way, go before you go to the transgender law changes, um, the the jaywalking thing and the loitering for prostitution thing, I'm I'm always torn on because – I live, you know, a, a certain portion of the year in a city where there's no laws against jaywalking. Right. And I think it works really fine in in downtown in in the city of that is New York, you right? People mm-hmm. just walk and if, and then if a car is coming and you walk in front of it, then you you will be dead. And if <laughs> and if a car is not coming and you can walk across the street safely, then everything will be fine. And there's a certain kind of embedded social cooperation that works. I don't think that this is about like laws versus no laws or a libertarian view of traffic versus a statist view of traffic. I think it's just the difference between wackadoo suburbia and a city. Well, but maybe, but California Boulevard is like really long intersections and cars are always coming. It's like kind of just the way that the streets are set up in suburbia is different, right? Yeah, well, I, but I think you know, for for all its for its despite its reputation as a place that is really car reliant, California has also had. I'm sure you had this that when I was a kid growing up, people would always say the 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 pedestrian has the absolute right of way, no matter what. And I I can remember friends coming from all over the world or around the country and just saying like, "This is crazy. You stop and let people walk in the middle of the street." So Californians, I think, are by nature, more tolerant of jaywalking than one might suspect. Um, and I was, I'm was i really more interested in the loitering feature because these are, th- this law, uh, th- th- it's actually, I believe, two laws under 357, but it's really about loitering. Um, so, yeah. it's, you know, then it, and it specifically prohibits cops from arresting people or fining them for loitering for the purposes of prostitution. Like, that's it. It suggests that, and, and I, I think I know the answer. So it's going to sound like I'm being funny, but I just don't actually totally know. Is that loitering for the purpose of prostitution, where you're the provider or the customer? I would imagine it could be both, frankly. Oh, so, so if you're loitering as the customer, that's illegal. Yeah. So imagine because I would shut down every bar if. <laughs> I don't like walking around like you're looking to pay someone to sleep with you is pretty much what I know. But imagine, but imagine you're outside that bar at, I don't know, you know, some weird time. And the cops let's say it's like, let's say you're kind of a late night person. So it's like 845 at night. Okay. For me, that's very late. Yes, that's good. I should not be outside at 845. Well yeah. known to most people. But the only reason that I'd be outside at 845 at night is if I were loitering for prostitution. That's pretty much <laughs> the only thing I could think of. That would be. <laughs> I assume Um, that's what people do after nine o'clock at night because I would just they're all looking for prostitutes. I mean, who's not? Or they are looking to get in that business. 
Uh, that could be. Yeah. I you heard know? there were job openings here. You could be on the demand side or the supply side. You just, I could you just, work for $12 an hour. It depends on minimum wages. That's right. right. I could work for $12 an hour, but nobody's allowed to hire me for that. So now I'll just be a prostitute. What's the market um, clearing level? <laughs> I am sure this show is going to get us uh, canceled right here. Well, um, it's a good thing. Okay. That we so are Haven for transgender kids. We now have free abortions in California. Uh, why not, uh, David, talk to us about a haven for transgender kids, even though I think we really did run this story through the grinder a couple of times. Yeah, I'm not sure I uh, fully understand what they're after. But um, again, if you're just looking at the U.S. News World Report deal, that and is this also Scott Wiener, by the way? Yeah, Wiener. Yeah, so th they want a law that will stop other states from punishing children who come to California. So that's a part, California would pass a law that would make it illegal in Utah to punish a kid who comes here? They, no, it's it's slightly different. It's it, it, it's it would block what it really means is, Okay, yeah, yeah. That, okay, gotcha. It's non-cooperation. It's non-cooperation with other state law enforcement agencies or parents who um, you know beg a police department to look for their child who they think ran off to California for a sex change or for a free abortion or whatever. Um, if you're a transgender kid and you arrive in California, you are now like in the game of freeze tag, you're safe. You know, you got here and California will not, it's a little bit like California's new tradition as a sanctuary state that we will not cooperate with federal authorities to, um, to protect the border and to uh, proceed with legal immigration. That's, you know, safe, legal, and um, allows for the safe transportation of people to this country. Now, so this is the same thing. Wiener's idea comes between parents um, prohibits parents in other states if they have if they're trying to act on their lawful right as parents to get their child back. Um, law enforcement is not allowed to intervene in California with those uh, out of state authorities. I got to tell you, um, these are the things that give us a podcast. Here's what I like, David: cyber flashing lawsuit. Um, this was uh, beginning uh, beginning on Sunday. You can sue someone for sending you obscene material against your will. It's known as cyber flashing. I'm reading from the story. It includes nudes fo nude photos or videos or other materials depicting sex acts. A court could award economic and non-economic damages plus penalties of up to thirty thousand dollars. Yeah, I would right. just yeah. I'd just be happy with somebody just stopping, please. Yeah. Um, I, I think I can say safely that has never happened to me. Uh, this this bill, remarkably, no recorded opposition in its Assembly and Senate uh, votes. I think that's pretty remarkable. There were no Republicans, no Democrats who opposed this bill. Everybody voted for it. Yeah. Um, it's a good one. Um, okay. So how are you doing on time, buddy? I'm fine. Okay, good. I love this. We're going for a really long one here then. Um, here's affordable housing. Um, and there's two laws here that they cover. One is um, Assembly Member uh, Buffy Wicks. You'll remember Buffy Wicks, uh, occasional uh, cameo appearances on this show, almost invariably for bad things. Um, she wants afford more affordable housing, um, and the bill is called the Affordable Housing and High Roads Act. Uh, high roads because high road means like the you know the road to serfdom. This is the road out of serfdom, apparently. Um, and what it says is that the state can basically jump in and crush any attempt by a local government to limit 
any kind of uh, affordable housing. Now, the key verb, the key word here, rather, the key adjective is affordable housing. Um, so in other words, if you wanted to build a whole bunch of housing that might serve middle class needs or upper middle class needs or wealthy needs so that people could move up the housing ladder and vacate their more modest properties, you can't do that. It's got to be affordable housing and the state can jump in and basically override any of your local ordinances, your local zoning control to uh, basically compel you to build housing. Uh, another law is, uh, is another Senate bill. Or this is a Senate bill. The other one was an assembly bill is the same. Basically, it says it's called the Middle Class Housing Act of 2022. And it's specifically, if you read this bill, David, what's really interesting is it says that you can use commercial property and rezone it for residential development. But an interesting passage in there suggests another purpose, David. I think the real purpose of this bill is not to build more housing, but to strengthen the rights of unions to oppose new construction that does not use union labor. There's a passage in the bill that protects unions, explicitly protects unions' rights, only unions, not you, not me, not somebody who's not in a, in a union. Um, only unions have the right to object to this new housing, this conversion of commercial property to residential Unions can object on any number of environmental grounds, uh, including CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, and the Coastal Commission. Now, this, of course, has been the thing that has kept housing from being built and kept people from building new uh, office buildings, new manufacturing plants, because a union gets in and says, hey, we don't have a cut of the operation here. You're using non-union labor. We're going to file a complaint that you haven't fulfilled your environmental quality checks. You're under CEQA and the Coastal Commission. And no matter, we don't actually have an interest in CEQA. We don't really give a rip about the environment. Our only real objection is you're not using union labor. So it's this is the least best. This is the, the worst kept secret in California uh, among several, I guess. It's among the worst kept secrets that unions use environmental law to stop projects that don't use union labor. That's all. As soon as you capitulate and agree to use union labor, you're fine. There's no more yeah. environmental violation. So both of these housing things are really, they really reveal the, the brave leap halfway across a chasm. They sound like, oh, who doesn't like more affordable housing? Until you realize what they mean by affordable housing, until you realize that the union is carved out here for special protection status to block any development that doesn't use union labor. It's, this is a bill. Um, by, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on her first name. I'm so sorry. Caballero. She's from Salinas, I believe. Um, Anna Marie, Anna Marie Caballero. She's the author of this bill that is an, it's a, it's a union carve out. It's, it's, that's its real goal here. It's not to increase housing. It's not to open up commercial property to, to redevelopment. It's to make sure unions have the right to violate the, the property rights of, of developers. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I'm surprised that more people don't know about it, um, that more people don't see what's going on and become outraged. Because I, I think I'm talking about normal people that would, if they understood this, would have a real aversion to the to the bullying tactics that get used. And yet um, it does seem like there's a great deal of ignorance about it. And, uh, well, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe we just have to do our part of getting the, the information out there. 
Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, as I think about writing this, writing this up, I think, you know, how do you persuade people like, you know, my, my wheelhouse is government unions, but how do you get to talk to people about unfunded pension liabilities and Senate Bill 866, which prohibits the right of government officials to talk about your right not to belong to a blah, 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 pensions, retirements, all this stuff. Um, this drives the normal person insane to hear this. And all the unions have to say is we're protecting working families. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And if I say we're protecting working families, it simply does not resonate. So I, I get to work on this this year. New Year's resolution. Um, I'm going to skip a couple of these things to move very quickly to um, rap lyrics being protected. Now, I have a, a, a unusual take on this, perhaps, and I think you'll share it, David. Um, here's the description in the U.S. news story. In criminal trials, prosecutors often use the defendant's words against them. That includes things like rap lyrics, which prosecutors sometimes use to attack someone's character or connect the crime to gang violence. A new law aims to restrict the use of creative content in courts, requiring a judge to first hold a hearing about whether the content is admissible. First thoughts on that, David. I'll tell you my story really quickly, if you'd like. Unless you're warmed up and ready to roll. No, you go. Okay. So a few years ago, I was working at OC Weekly when, as happens, one of my uh, best reporters, a guy named Nick Scow, was sitting in a courtroom covering a related, an unrelated case. And a man walked up to him and said, you do a lot of this stuff of getting innocent people out of jail, out of prison. I'd like you to take a look at my grandson's case. His grandson was a Lakewood kid who aspired, a, a white, this, this will bear some uh, interest here, a white kid um who aspired to be a rap artist and so wrote some pretty graphic uh, gangster lyrics, anti-cop stuff, shooting cops, shooting people, um, the typical sort of thing that suburban white kids love about what they think is gangster rap music. Um, the kid was arrested in really interesting circumstances uh, for a crime he could not have committed. I'll spare you the details of this, except to say we proved beyond the shadow of a doubt the kid could not have committed the crime he was accused of doing because he was on the other side of the county at precisely the moment the crime took place. Nevertheless, he was arrested in the company of a black kid, and a black person was uh, reported to have been involved in the crime this kid was accused of. How did they get this kid uh, convicted of this crime? Well, he was with a black kid, number one. And the prosecutor in, in Orange County also determined that the kid's interest in rap lyrics was um, evidence of real violence in his character. Uh, so they found a peachy folder under his bed in Lakewood, California, with a bunch of rap lyrics. They showed these to the jury who clutched their pearls and covered their mouths and said, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. And the kid was convicted. Um, I have found this just absolutely reprehensible. As I say, we got the, the happy news is we got the kid off. Um and the DA reluctantly let him go. Uh, the whole story is just worth getting into at some point, perhaps, because it shows you how cr you know the, the the criminal prosecution thing can just go off the rails. But the bottom line, it was the rap lyrics that got this. We had a number of jurors tell our reporter, "Oh yeah, those rap lyrics were very, very persuasive." So you know, my sense is this is fair. A judge should be in the position of saying it's not going to be a perfect system. But I like the idea of a judge being able to say, no, prosecutor, these lyrics don't seem to have anything to do with your case. But isn't that already, why do you need a separate law for that, Will? Isn't there already ju judicial discretion about that which is prejudicial? I wish I had checked that simple fact here, David, and I did well, then, not. But we, in law and order, we see it all the time. But <laughs> people object, and then you can't, I, like, is that not how it works? 
This is a serious question. I thought that's how it works. Like certain things are admissible and certain things are not on the basis of their probative versus prejudicial. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't think rap lyrics deserve to be excluded from that, but I don't know that they deserve special waiting within that either right yeah. like just maybe, maybe I, right. thought, I think like in other words certain like when they went to oj's house right and there was question as to whether or not certain things were going to be prejudicial in the way the jury would see stuff or in any any murder case the violence of the crime or past events the judge i thought gets to make a judgment call about what will unduly prejudice the jury and that which has actual evidentiary benefit. We need to ask Andy McCarthy this. I think this is a great question. Um, let me just say that I will work on that. Okay. I'll, I'll go dig that up. All right. Well, let's move on. David, you'll be glad to know that as of January 1st, there is no more pink tax. Do you remember the pink tax? Uh, I paid sales tax when I bought tickets to the pink concert. <laughs> That's the first thing I thought of when I heard the pink tax for the first time. But no, the pink tax is that, uh, here's the description. Women often pay a lot more for shampoo and deodorant than men do. That's because retailers often charge more for products that are marketed toward women, a practice known as the pink tax. A new law says products that retailers must, a new, I'm sorry, a new law, they wrote this wrong. A new law says that retailers must charge the same prices for products that are substantially similar regardless of their marketing. Um, this is what I was hoping to exploit with you, David, this pink tax was that I was going to go in and just remarket cheaper mail brands, um, under a new pink label. But my new business plan has been completely destroyed by this law. I can't do that. I was going to take men's razors, for instance, and call them women's razors and sell them for cheap. I, there are times since we started doing this podcast where, I get so mad at you because I'm positive that you're bullshitting me about a story <laughs> and that you're going to make me comment on something and then tell me, oh my God, I can't believe you thought I was serious. Of course, that's a joke. <laughs> but I'm reading the same link and I could Google some other stuff and see, but US News and World Report didn't go to all this trouble of putting this inside a, a legitimate story filled with 10 other laws. So this is a real thing. That you there I, is a law on the books that you cannot – they're basically price fixing based on what the state believes is similar product. That's right. Okay. You, you and I talked about this and you had almost the same reaction. I mean this is you know months and months and months ago. Um, yeah, this is, um, this is a <laughs> – I'm not going to say anything else. Uh, all right. New state holidays. Um, California will have three new state holidays in 2023. Juneteenth, which I love, by the way. I think that we ought to celebrate the day on which a, a number of slaves in Texas first heard the good news. Um, I think that's a, I've said this before on the show, I think the Juneteenth uh, neatly combines the whites, white people who fought on the Union side and were abolitionists as well as black people who suffered under the the you know the the horrific uh, slave system, and everybody who's alive today and hates slavery, which is I think about a hundred percent of Americans. I'm sure there's somebody somewhere right now who thinks slavery was a pretty good thing, but uh, you know 
you can't you can't really uh, bank on insanity. So um, you know what else has become really unpopular? I've noticed not only slavery but mm-hmm. Nazis. What Nazis? Nazis. People don't like Nazis. Nope. You know, no, I'm they do not. They do not like Nazis. They may like the white supremacy, but they do not like the Nazi brand. It's a damaged brand. I'm just going to yeah. say. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Juneteenth. You, you were talking about White Lotus earlier, but in the spirit of the greatest show on HBO, and in my opinion, the greatest show in the history of television, Succession, mm. my favorite line from Cousin Greg, when he was a little worried about this new host that the TV network had hired who seemed to have named his dog after Hitler's dog and was just a little <laughs> out there is you're saying like, Oh yeah, we're the Nazis. He goes, well, Nazis, it's, they're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Juneteenth. I'm for it. Um, and I'll explain why I think this is actually a, a not just a good moral idea for a holiday, um, but also a financial one. You'll see uh, the Lunar New Year, and um, and and Lunar New Year is huge for our Asian American brethren, and uh, the Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day. Um, here's why this gets a little interesting. Uh, I, I looked up the law, and it actually basically simply allows public employees, because this is a state law, so it's only state workers it allows, um, can shift a personal day or other flexible holiday to allow them by law to take off these days. So if I work someplace and I want to take off Juneteenth, but my company doesn't offer it, I'm sorry, not my company, my 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 state office, I, I can use my personal day. I don't have, it's not an additional day off. It's a day that I already have, and it's a flexible day, and I can use it to take off Juneteenth, um, which I think I could have done before the law. Um, but I'm all for Juneteenth. And, you know, hooray for my friends uh, from the Asian community who love the Lunar New Year. That's great. And uh, Armenian Genocide, also don't like that. Now, I mean, I'm, I like the holiday remembrance, but um, not sure how we go deeper into everybody who has an aggrieve, a grievance like that. I And pardon me to my Armenian friends. I think this is a, you know, it's a tragedy and I think it's worth m- remembering. Um, but I don't know that we have a Holocaust Memorial Day. Maybe we do and we don't get it off. I'll have to check into that. Um, lots of people, lots of victims in human history. Human history is a bloodbath. Uh, always has been. Okay. Um, I'm going to just jump to um, two last things here, David. Salary disclosure. Considering applying for a job but frustrated because you don't know what the salary might be? A new law in California aims to fix that. Starting in January, companies with at least 15 employees must include the pay scale in all job postings. David, both you and I hire people. I have a problem with this law. Um, I work in a company with fewer than 15 employees, however. Uh, You don't. You have a bigger company. So uh, tell me about posting job salaries uh, in all job postings. Yeah, I, I uh, by the way, where's the link on this? Uh, to the salary disclosure. It's the last, it's one of the last two items on this uh, story in the U.S. news bit. Oh, I see. I, I had moved on to the next section. Okay, got it. My My apologies. Um, yeah, so let me let me read up on this one real quick because I missed yeah, this one. So it, what it basically says is that if you run an ad in you know on online a website or something like that or 
post the job internally, you've got to let people know what the pay scale is. So I'll just tell you what my problem is already. Yeah. So that that's an interesting thing. They're referring to if you even post the job. Right. And is the fear here that um, you could end up posting a job and someone could get excited and interview and accept the job and then find out it was less money than they thought? Uh, or find out that uh, the job has paid other people more in the past. Uh, that, you know, you you could find out that, in fact, your specific position in this larger than 15 people company, your specific position pays some people more than others. You, you want to know what's funny, Will? I am literally, as we are doing this podcast... I approved two job postings, um, and you're right. My company has uh, a lot more than 15 employees um, for two new positions we're hiring, one a very senior level and one a more administrative level, um, where I made them take out from the posting what the uh, the salary was going to be. <laughs> um, it, it's a very bad idea for competitive intelligence for people to be posting what um, the salary is going to be of a particular job. You um, do not want uh, for any number of different reasons. Um, when you pay at a premium, you may have reasons that you want that to be, may be kept confidential to competitors. Um, when you pay uh, lower because you're hiring more people or whatever, there's all kinds of strategic and tactical reasons a business may not want it publicly disclosed what they are paying. And when you post a position with a salary and then you hire the person, you've effectively told, and then you announce, we just hired John Doe as our new director of blah, blah, blah. And three weeks earlier, you posted what that position was going to pay. You've effectively now violated John Doe's privacy by telling the world what you're paying the person as well. Right. Right. This this whole thing is just cockamamie. Yeah, the the argument is that this is transparency that benefits all kinds of people, but especially the marginalized who are more likely to come in, interview for a job, and then find out that you know its pay is really low. Um, that would be obviated apparently if you just posted what the salary is. The other problem is that sometimes posting a salary. Uh, limits the kinds of quality people you will want, and not even for that position. I've been in the, you know, I've I've been in a situation where I advertised for a job, knew in my mind what the position roughly might pay, but then interviewed somebody who was just lights out stellar and could do much more with that job than I had budgeted for it, and I've gone ahead and hired that person now. You know, I if I'm forced to post what the salary is, I might not get that person. But if I post a phony range, the person's going to be offended that they didn't get the high. Um, uh, so it just, again, it just takes all the sort of this. just so the stupid area. and interventionist and statist. I don't even know what to say. Yeah. Now, I wonder if you have an option where you could just do a range similar to what politicians get to do about their net worth, that my stock portfolio is worth between $5 million and $100 million. Yeah. Like, could you just say this job pays between twenty thousand and two million? Yeah, that'd be interesting. I'd like to test that. I, I do need to say though, just by ba there's so many pragmatic reasons that the employer and the employee could both 
really suffer from this and why it's a really bad idea. And you and I have both highlighted some, but I really do want to appeal to some Hayekian principles here and, and remind people about limiting principles and conservatism. This is, a, I mean, there's certain regulations people make a, a case for, and I can disagree or agree, but you know, that's what debate is for. But this is the kind of stuff that there's absolutely no limiting principle. You you would have to be like Robert Wright, Bernie Sanders level leftist to think that the state has any right to tell an employer that they must post a salary range publicly when they advertise a position. If you're going to not post a salary position and that's going to cut you off from certain qualified candidates or some people won't apply because they're just offended you didn't announce what the range would be or whatever, then there's any kind of cost-benefits analysis an employer has to make in their decision not to post it. But this idea that the government has the knowledge and incentives to have an opinion on this matter is totally statist. Yeah, couldn't have said it better. I um, I think about those numerous situations in which I've, you know, in a first interview, really asked people directly um, where it seemed reasonable to do so. I've asked them, you know, what are you thinking of paying? And, and I've told people when I first interview them, you know, sometimes here's roughly what we're thinking of paying. And it's roughly because it will, de- it will be determined ultimately by whether you fit or you don't, and whether the candidate has greater skills than we even envisioned a person having. And as I say, I have more frequently gone way up from what I envisioned than way down, uh, because I really want to make sure that I get the right person uh, who fits in our organization. I think it was W. Edwards Deming, is that his name? The the big uh, business guru back in the, I want to say f- 50s, who didn't make much of a name for himself here in the U.S. and had to go to Japan first as a uh, kind of management consultant and said, you know, you really want to find a person who shares your, we might call them soft skills today, you know, their, their ability to work well with humans in a team, uh, their ingenuity, their curiosity, whatever the soft things are, uh, because you can kind of teach the technical, but you can't teach hard work, showing up on time, teamwork. Find those people first, he said, and then find a place in your company for great people. Um Ooh, the, so, the bell is ringing. That's uh, that's my phone, which I forgot to shut off before. Oh. And now my dog is behind me, uh, my dog who is late in years and uh, choking to death. Okay, last, last bill, uh, a law to ban new oil drilling within 3,200 feet of home schools and other community sites is set to take effect on January 1st, maybe put on hold by a referendum, it says here. We've already been through that process. Uh, with regard to AB 257, a campaign organized by oil and gas groups have organized the ballot drive, hoping voters will overturn the law in 2024. Um, David, any problem with uh, zoning that prohibits uh, oil drilling within 3,200 feet of home schools and other community sites? Yeah, I didn't even know that, uh, that you were allowed to do oil drilling in California at all. So I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know what this 3,200 feet's about. Um, I think this is a bill that got away from the legislature and the governor uh, before yeah, they really I, thought I about right. it, because exactly as you say, it is nigh improbable that you would ever be allowed to build, you know, to drill oil anywhere because there's going to be a quote unquote community site everywhere from now on until eternity uh, when California falls into the ocean and we create what's 
uh, lyrically known as Arizona Bay, thanks to our friends in the band Tool. Um, yeah. Okay, David, um, we could go on, but I think we've done absolutely more than enough today. And I am shocked if anybody has stayed with us this entire time. Yeah, I I, uh, I think we've done most of 2023 in our first episode. I love We're it. done. Yeah, yeah, no more to do. You can always find this podcast on the National Review website, but it's easier for you and far better for us if you subscribe. Hey, New Year's resolution, subscribe to the show if you don't. I can't imagine you don't. Um, and David, you and I got called out in a nice uh, column this week by Matt Fleming of the yeah. uh, so- Southern California News Group, uh, who noted that uh, he-, he noted that our show is famous perhaps only for California Exodus. But there you go. There you go. Um, but it's easier for you and better for us if you subscribe. Of course, rate and review the show. That helps us. Uh, please email us with your comments and story suggestions. I want to thank all the people who do that, even during the holidays. Uh, you know who you are, and uh, I ought to do a better job of mentioning your names. Sometimes I do, uh, but always with care of asking you first. Uh, on behalf of my friend and co-host, David Bonson, we give thanks as ever to session producers Lucas Klaus, Brian Tong, and Glenn Hall. Um, Glenn Hall, thank you. If you're still on with us, man, you do yeoman work. Also, our researchers, Houston Reese, Sheridan Swanson, and Alex Kachatrian, all of our friends at National Review, we thank you, and especially Sarah Schutte. Thanks also to Metalachi, the L.A.-based mariachi metal band for our music. La revolución continua la semana próxima.